We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. The cost of living scandal could force 1.7 million households into homelessness this winter, according to the charity Crisis. In the UK, we can no longer rely on social housing to protect people from sleeping rough or sofa surfing. If you were alive in 1979, you had a 40% chance of living in an affordable council home. Today, that figure is just under 8%. The problem is that house prices are way out of line with earnings and have been for a very, very long time. It feels like your salary is just going on surviving, like everything has gone up. So your whole salary is going on that. The growth this government is going to see is a growth in homelessness. These are the people who are least able to weather these economic shocks. So what happened to all our council houses? Did Thatcher's right to buy policy create the housing crisis we see today? And how would our lives be different if we could depend on warm, comfortable social homes? We need more social housing fundamentally because when everything else collapses, we rely on social housing and we just simply haven't had enough. The, the dearth of social housing, which could be fixed if politicians wanted to fix it, is a key driver here as well. And it's also part of the solution. We'd argue that we need a mass social housing building programme so we can get people, particularly young people, those with families, into genuinely affordable social housing rents. Welcome to this special mini-series of the New Economics podcast. This week we're asking, can social homes fix the housing crisis? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really chuffed to be joined down the line by Becky Winson, Senior Organiser at the New Economics Foundation, returning friend of the pod. Hi, Becky. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for being with us. I was remembering how last time you were on the podcast, uh, I coined the term unionette to describe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how we came upon that, but I can only apologise. No, don't. Uh, That's great. <laughs> It stuck with you. Yeah. Um, I'm also really pleased to be joined down the line by Suzanne Muna, Secretary of the Social Housing Action Campaign. Hi, Suze. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so let's jump in because we've got lots to get through. So we heard in the intro there about how the government's failures to get to grips with the skyrocketing cost of living could push millions of people into homelessness. So Becky, starting with you, how bad was the housing situation before the cost of living crisis hit? So we kind of know what we're kind of marking ourselves against and, and how much worse can it get? Oh God, what um, 
interesting question. Um, I mean, it, it was already pretty bad, right? I mean, I think anyone, especially people of my age, perhaps, and anyone who uh, is on a low income, anyone with disabilities who needs adapted housing. I mean, the, the housing crisis was already, it, it was the cost of living crisis for those people. A lot of people have been living in crisis um, for a long time now. And with the cost of living crisis, on top of all this, I don't really want to think that much about how much worse it could get. The thing that worries me the most is that I don't think from a housing point of view that government is thinking about that either. There seems to be just a real sort of shrugging of the shoulders about uh, housing policy at the moment, certainly when it comes um, to affordability. Thanks, Becky. So, Suze, why is the shortage of social housing inflaming the situation that Becky just laid out? Well, one of the things it does without a good supply of public housing, so housing that is at sub-market rents, what that does is it leaves everybody else basically at the mercy of private landlords. And obviously, in, in any system, which capitalism is, you, where you've got supply and demand, a shortage of supply is going to push up prices. And in this case, you know, we know that rents are now taking up huge chunks of people's income, leaving them after paying out for their housing costs with very little spare income left over. And obviously, with other costs going up as well, like the heating um, and food, as Becky said, what's happening is that people are just reaching the point and have already reached in a lot of cases where they have got more demands on their income than they've got income to go around. And obviously, that is going to be a huge problem. For anyone who doesn't know, Suze, just to um, help out listeners who don't have as much in-depth knowledge, could you explain how social housing actually works? Just a super quick overview. So how councils and housing associations actually decide who can access it and what rent tenants should pay? Yeah, I think there is a lot of confusion around this. So so what you've got is social housing is a generic term and it splits broadly into two. You've got council housing, which is social housing. Um, and is provided by your, as you would expect, by your local council. And then you've also got housing associations registered with the regulator of social housing who are also eligible then to supply social housing. And the councils and housing associations both generally do it on the basis of allocations. So you get a point system the higher you you are up on that point system. So that would be, for example, people fleeing um, domestic violence would get a few additional points for that. If they are in overcrowded accommodation, they'd get additional points for that. So it attempts to be a kind of needs-based housing supply. It does, it's a very, very imperfect system, but you know, I won't talk about all the imperfections in it. But broadly speaking, that's how it's done. You would go onto a, a waiting list, usually with the council, and the council would then allocate you either to one of their own homes or they would allocate you to they have a certain number of the local housing associations. They would have the right to nominate to housing association properties as well. That's kind of broadly how it works. As far as we can tell, about a third of councils now pretty much have no council housing stock at all. All of their public housing, all of their social housing is actually provided by housing associations in their areas. So that is one of the more recent developments. Let's take a step back then, because I, I want to talk about how we got here, because I feel like it's important to kind of unearth the, the history of social housing in the UK a little bit. Um, so Becky, could you tell us what happened after the First World War and how did that contribute to where we are today around social housing? Basically, what happened after both the First and Second World Wars 
is that um, not only did the ruling classes understand that they needed to provide social uh, housing or, or housing full stop because of their like huge problems with the physical health of people they'd seen uh, who they'd needed to fight on the front lines. There was there was a lot of people being recruited into the army who literally weren't physically fit to fight because of the conditions that they'd grown up in and lived in. So not only did you have that recognition that that problem needed to be solved, you had a massive push from the working classes, the people that were stuck in those poor homes and slums, basically. You had a massive push for them for social housing, for affordable housing. In World War One, you had um, Mary Barber's army in Scotland and the rent strikes that she and the other working class women organised after World War II. There's a myth, I think, mainly because of just who got to write the history books, that it was the Labour government and the Labour government alone who sort of provided social housing sort of out of the goodness of its heart in 1945. But if you look back um, through a lot of the archives, what you'll actually find is there was a lot of pressure put on the government to do that and do that at pace because people started in an organised way squatting, especially in places like Brighton. There was a real movement there that put pressure on the government to solve the lack of housing provision by starting to, to build homes. So what then happened is you had a mass social house building programme. So you had millions of properties built over the following decades. And that led to the situation that you were describing in the 70s where about 40-45% of the population was living in social housing. So did we really, I know, because what I've heard is that we had this kind of golden age of social housing after the Second World War, and then it kind of slotted into this British vision of the welfare state at the time. So it'd be good to kind of, I guess, your get your thoughts on whether that is true, um, and also to have a sense of the scale. So like how much of the population, how many people were kind of uh, living in social housing when it was at its peak compared to today? So it was it was millions, millions more than today. Um, I think that at the peak it was, and Suze might correct me on this, but I think the peak it was about 45% of people were living in social housing or owner occupying that's the important thing to recognize there wasn't there wasn't a massive private rental sector in the same way that there is today so it was it was the sort of default setting for if you, if you were renting in a lot of places and for a lot of people as for whether or not it's a golden age i think that depends on your viewpoint i mean i know people uh, who are my parents generation who were were moved into social housing and from the slum clearances from Manchester and Liverpool, uh, where I live in Basingstoke, there was a lot of people moved out of uh, London after the war and moved to Basingstoke um, towards the 60s. And what all those people have told me is that it was sort of like you were going from a really pokey two up, two down with an outside toilet to these like modern new build um, properties with big picture windows, indoor plumbing, heating, the works. And they were really, you know, they felt like they'd won the lottery was my dad way of describing it. I think over the, the following decades, mainly because of a lack of investment and also just some daft decisions around maybe the architecture and design of some of those estates, I doubt many council, all council tenants rather, would tell you that those estates and those developments were, were golden. But by and large, the country got out of them what they put into them when they were well funded and well cared for um, and the people in them were looked after and functioned as a community. They were brilliant communities to live in. As you started to see the investment dropping off and as you've seen that investment dropping off and in fact just not 
happening from central government at all over the last decade or so, that's when you get to start seeing that picture that's that's often painted in the right wing press and media of sink estates and um, you know no go areas. There is a bit of a difference between the housing that was built in between the wars and just after the wars, that sort of block of housing, if you like, that was really good quality. There was really good investment in that, as Becky said. And those homes were really, really nice, very, very solid. And that was whether they were being built by councils or whether they were built by charities like the Peabody Trust, you know, really solid homes in nice areas. And a lot of thought was given to the surrounding as well. So it wasn't just about the house itself. It was also about building facilities and creating communities in those areas. And then into the 60s, that's when you started to get much cheaper designs, tower blocks going up. And living in a tower block itself is not such a problem. I mean, you see in other cities, New York, for example, some of the the tower blocks are absolutely, you know, beautiful homes to live in. But not a lot of attention was given to maintaining the quality of those tower blocks, making them really nice areas to live and also to those other facilities. And also it clustered poverty in certain areas where you've got notorious estates and and that gave social housing quite a bad name. And there wasn't a lot of attention and support given to address the causes of that poverty. And I think culturally what that allowed is what came later, the changes that came later, the policies that were introduced by governments after that, they were able to use that negative publicity and that negative view of social housing to actually attack, you know, the roots of social housing and to sort of push things in a different direction. So it's a very long story, this story of social housing. And all the time there's been this twin supply from housing associations and charities on the one hand and councils on the other. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long story, but it seems like certainly a very important one to understand if you're really going to be able to kind of grapple with the nuances of where we are today around this. Because, you know, it's not just as simple as I think what a lot of people think, which is just we had loads of social housing and Thatcher sold it all off, you know. And just to, to pick up what you were saying there, Suze, so obviously in in 1979, we had a new prime minister. Um, and so could you tell us a little bit more about what happened with social housing after Thatcher was elected? I think it's time to get into it. Yeah, I, there, there were two key changes that happened then. One is given far more publicity than the other. The first was obviously the right to buy. And this was really a furtherance of this kind of Thatcherite ideology, really. It wasn't just one idea. It was an ideology. Owning your own home was better than renting. That was, you know, everybody should aspire to own their own home. Anyone who didn't aspire to that was somehow lacking. That was one of the sort of narratives that was coming out and therefore... A right to buy, you know, it was giving people, you know, that had lived in their council homes for a certain period of time, they would get a discounted offer on their council homes that they could buy. People bought those homes at a discounted rate, but then sold them on. And a lot of them have now ended up in the hands of corporate landlords. So that was one mechanism by which social housing was privatised, public housing was privatised. The other route, which doesn't seem to get so much attention, so I am really glad that we can talk about it, was the large-scale voluntary transfers, LSVTs, which was basically a process by which a council could get rid of its stock and basically hand it over to a housing association. And what they would do is the council would manage the decline of an estate by not investing in the repairs and maintenance and facilities around that area. And then they would put it to a ballot of the tenants and residents in those areas. 
And if the ballot was won, that it would allow the council to transfer those properties over to a housing association. And of course, what people would get is a really lovely glossy brochure promising the earth from the housing association. They would get new radiators. They would get new bathrooms. They would get new parks, new facilities for the children. And as I said, this would usually follow on from a period of managed decline by underinvestment by the council. And then it would be given sometimes a very, very discounted price to a housing association. So it concentrated the stock into the hands of housing association. It was another way of kind of privatising public housing. But a lot of us at the time, a lot of housing campaigners at the time said this is the thin end of the wedge. You know, this will mean the full privatisation of public housing. And actually, that is exactly what we've seen play out, because what happened after that, and this was after Thatcher, this has been successive governments since then, uh, housing associations were gradually deregulated, had less and less checks and balances on them, fewer controls on what they could do. At one time, for example, if they did want to sell off or demolish a home that was a social renter's home, they would have to go through the regulator. That was deregulated so that housing associations no longer had to get permission from the regulator in order to sell off stock to a, a private corporate landlord. So, you know, we haven't seen a massive transfer from housing associations to private landlords, but that capacity is there now. We can see this kind of sucking away of the stock that was built with public money, after all. You know, it was built with taxpayers' money to build housing, to provide homes, to provide stable communities. And that has just been financially exploited by private landlords and even by housing associations. So that was one kind of really clear output there around the kind of deregulation piece and the degradation of the stock, as you said. I know that Thatcher wanted to turn the UK into a nation of homeowners. So did you succeed? How did how does uh, home ownership look across the country now? It did increase. It did increase um, home ownership. But economically, the real beneficiaries have been the private corporate landlords. And I'm not talking about people who let out a room in their house because, you know, maybe they're a pensioner and just need a bit of extra income to be able to manage their budgets. I'm not talking about, you know, sort of low-grade landlordism, if you like. You know, the, it's the big corporate landlords with whole estates, really, that have managed to benefit from this financially. And as we said right at the beginning, this has pushed up the price of renting. They are able to control the supply. They are able to demand very high levels. I mean, you know, 30 40 50% of people's income going on just on their rent alone is far too high. It just doesn't leave them enough money to live on. So it's really benefited the landlord class. You know, the landlord class has come out on top of this. The other thing, obviously, that Thatcher did, and again, successive governments have just followed on, even when we had the 13 years of Labour government, this was continued, the underinvestment in council house building. And that was a very important process, because that meant that it left the supply of housing largely to private landlords and didn't provide a supply of housing that was publicly funded and publicly controlled where rents could be controlled. Councils do build some, but they are not given the resources to build the number of homes that they actually need or even refurbish existing homes that have fallen into disrepair. Um, You did ask, which I think is a really important question, Aisha, about, you know, how do people feel about owning their own homes? When we talk to people, what people want is stability. You know, they want a stable home. It doesn't really matter to them that much 
whether they own it or not, it should be allocated on the basis of need because it is so central to everything else, to everything else that gives you a stable, comfortable life. We have to think about what it actually means, like day to day for you to own your own home in this country now. I mean, house prices have gone up exponentially, like they're off the chart since Right to Buy was introduced. Um, And what that means is that most people will be locked into paying off fairly like hefty mortgages for most of their working lives. So I'm going through buying a house now. Personally, like I would love a council house because the rent I'd be paying monthly on a council house would be cheaper than the mortgage that I'm going to be paying off until I'm about 70 years old. So it's much of a muchness, really, apart from the fact that, you know, I'm meant to aspire to own my own home. And I think we've we've got a very weird narrative around home ownership in this country that paints being in the, you know the bottom of paying off a mortgage, which the average price is what now nearly like three hundred k, like paying off a three hundred thousand pound mortgage, um, it is not there's there's you know it is not a, a comfortable state of affairs for a lot of people, um, and yet that's what we aspire to rather than living in a decent home for an affordable amount of money. Mm. So you, you kind of touched on it a little bit there, Becky, but I was going to ask, is the picture the same across all of the UK? You obviously mentioned the average house price being kind of 300000 which certainly isn't in London. Um, or does it differ outside of not only London, but England? Like how, how does this map geographically? Yeah, so it's interesting to think about this um, from a UK-wide point of view. So obviously all of the UK was affected by right to buy, but actually... Very soon, England will be the only nation left in the UK which has got right to buy. So Wales have got rid of it. Scotland have got rid of it. Northern Ireland, I think you can't buy council homes, but you can buy housing association ones or vice versa. I'm not quite sure. Um, So they're on the way to getting rid of it. And so housing policies, like as they've been devolved in different nations, you are starting to see like a, a change in in how the housing crisis looks and is dealt with across the UK. So um, at the time of recording, it was only yesterday that Nicola Sturgeon announced a rent freeze across Scotland for both private and social renters. That's something that the Westminster government has yet to do. But more broadly, if you look at the ways that that figures which sort of will tell you about the housing crisis. Um, If you look at the differences between countries, um, we haven't released this yet, but NEF have just mapped, um, for example, the amount of um, housing benefit which is paid to private landlords in each uh, local authority in the UK. And in Scotland and Wales, even just as a proportion of the total housing benefit budget, those amounts are massively lower than they are in England. And that is because those administrations have started down the path of building the supply that they need and also tackling various other aspects of the housing crisis. Now, a lot of Welsh housing activists and Scottish housing activists will say that they are not there yet, totally. They're they're not there and they have got a long way to go. They're undoing decades of different policies. But there is a marked difference between the housing crisis and how it is affecting different parts of the UK. And the difference is basically governments and authorities that are prioritising social homes building and supply are doing much better at dealing with this than ones that aren't. 
And in terms of how that affects communities, the recent waves of strikes are really encouraging to me, actually, because they show that one thing which was true for a while has stopped being true, which is that if your rent is taking up a massive amount of your income, there's a much greater chance that you're prepared to sort of take fairly crap treatment at work because you need to hold down that job. And, you know, if you get thrown out, you're probably going to be paying higher rent. You need to to basically put your head down and shut up. So, yeah, high cost housing and lack of security in housing affects people in all sorts of ways. It, it basically makes them individuals rather than communities. Which was the desired effect now, wasn't it? Yeah, Suze, I want to kind of bring our attention back to the present a little bit because, you know, we've this has come up a lot, but I want to really kind of get specific. We've got way less people able to access social homes. I think that's really clear. But what are the knock-on effects of this? Kind of how is the lack of everything that Becky was just laying out, basically? How are we seeing that kind of in this moment when we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis? Yeah, I mean, apart from the obvious concerns that people have around being able to pay either rents or mortgages, and that's regardless of which type of housing they're in, you've got all of the issues because, I mean, the housing picture is so complex. It's also about the accountability, how much power, you know, the relative balance of power between tenants and landlords as well. And the imbalance of power between tenants and landlords means that people are living in housing that is overcrowded, that is too expensive, that is not being repaired properly. We've got the shared ownership scandal, a product whereby you take a mortgage out on part of your home and you rent the rest of your home and it's sold as being the best of both worlds. It's actually the worst of both worlds. Even if you only own 25% of the home and rent the rest, you are responsible, for example, for 100% of the repairs and maintenance costs. So the The landlord just gets money for old rope. They're not doing anything for that rent. You've got the cladding scandal is still very much in play. There's still a lot of people who are living in homes that are clad in flammable material. They can't sell. They're trapped. We know there is a huge problem for people who are disabled, for example. There's a huge level of discrimination within this housing system against people who are disabled. It intersects with other characteristics as well, like race, gender, You know, so it just plays out in so many different ways and means that people are living in conditions that really are not suitable for them and are really struggling with those. And that destabilizes every other area of their life. It it makes, you know, if you're living in really damp accommodation, you're going to suffer a lot of health problems. The stress and the worry and the anxiety will give people mental health problems or exacerbate any mental health problems that they've got. If you're in overcrowded accommodation, it's very hard for the children to study. It's very hard to hold down a job if you're in insecure housing and have to move every few months. So it destabilizes. It has a ripple effect on the rest of people's lives, really. And that's what makes it so important that we look at public housing as something that should be publicly owned, you know, and is a resource there for the state to use, really, to house people who need it. And what about public opinion on that? Do you think social housing is popular now? Is this the kind of thing that a Labour government, for example, could could make one of their flagship things and people would get behind it? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of polling that, that suggests that, yeah, I mean, people are in full support of social housing. And interestingly, anecdotally, whenever I've been sort of out and about as an organiser and, and there's people kicking off about a new housing development or new homes built, you know, if you ask the question, would you, you know, would you be happier with them if uh, if it was social housing or affordable housing? They say, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. 
nearly everyone in this country has a problem with housing of one sort or the other. You know, even if uh, you don't, you know, you don't want a council home, you want to buy, um, you're priced out of that market unless you're super wealthy. If you're privately renting, you're beholden to your landlord. If you're a social housing tenant, your rights are sort of being chipped away at and your conditions are being chipped away at by lack of government funding. So it'd be massively popular if the government um, prioritised this. And you say, you know, would a, would a Labour government get a boost in the polls if, if they went for this? I should think a Tory government would as well. I mean, insanely, you know, we've had two housing ministers since he was in post, but Michael Gove, who was the last sort of Tory housing and levelling up minister, before the shambles we've just had, went to great lengths to talk about um, social housing and how important it was. Now, personally, I don't particularly think that's because he's personally wedded to the idea or very loyal to the idea of social housing. I think that's because what he recognised is that the Tories have now got to appeal to a bunch of voters in the red wall and numerous polls um, and numerous door knocking will have told the Tories that Social housing is something that people consider a priority. And, you know, if you ask most people what the issue with housing in the UK is, it is affordability. And there is no way to solve an affordability crisis long term without building social housing. Absolutely. I want to I want to end by looking forwards. Of course, we've started to talk about where some of the fight back is happening. But let's talk about right to buy in the first instance and the kind of resistance to it. I know, as you were saying, Becky, it still exists in England, but in other parts of the UK, less so when we're kind of starting to see uh, a gradual rolling back there. The government recently announced that social rents will be capped next year rather than increased at the rate of inflation. Um, So let's maybe kick off there. Suze, why is this important and how were you involved in, in making that happen? Yeah, I mean, one of the real positives is this growth in resistance. And just to say the cap was always in place. The cap on social housing was always there. The media has been reporting it as if it's something new. It's not. The change that has happened this year is that government has ditched its own formula, which is why government didn't announce that bit. You know, they just made it sound like it was something new, really. But they ditched their own formula, which would have been inflation based. And with skyrocketing inflation, that would have meant skyrocketing rents. So that's what government has done this time. And that has been the direct result of the campaigning that has been done by SHAC, by New Economic Foundation and by other housing groups in this kind of field, really. There are lots and lots of campaign groups out there. If you're interested in housing, anybody can get involved in a local housing campaign group. There will be one in your area, whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting, you will find that there is a housing campaign locally. And we would definitely recommend people get involved in that and really try and, you know, support those campaigns as much as they can. We're taking the message to the trade unions and really saying this is this is not just a community issue. This is an industrial issue. And Becky, I think, really made that very clear earlier, you know, the impact on wages and people are resisting. People are resisting not just right to buy, but the, the, we have a lot of people that we are supporting, for example, withholding payment of rents or service charges. So there's a lo- lots of different pockets of resistance in different areas. And I think what I've seen over the last couple of years is that people are coming together more. There are more mechanisms for joining up the different campaigns. And again, that's a real, that's a real positive, I think. And, you know, you started off with um, a question about the impact it will have and how much, you know, what's going to happen and will people end up on the streets? Part of the sort of answer to that question really is going to be in how much people start to resist. 
you know, if people don't want to end up on the streets but can't afford to pay their rents, you know, stay and fight. That's what we would say and that's what we would try and support them to do. Don't allow yourself to be turfed out of your home. See what community support you can get. See what support you can get from your trade union and resist any, you know, attempts to evict you. You know, let's fight back against some of these landlords, really. Yeah, and I know that you've been doing some of that also, Becky, with the Druid's Heath work. It'd be great to kind of hear a bit about that and then also the Neff Homes for Us campaign. I think the message that I want to give people and that I've learned over doing work with Druid's Heath and the renters' unions and groups up and down the country and more recently with with Suze and, and Shaq, the message I want to leave people with is that we will win. Like this will not carry on. The crisis will be brought to an end and it will be brought to an end by people. It will not be brought to an end just by government changing its mind about something and suddenly deciding to be nice. And the reason that I've got that faith is because I have seen up and down the country people having small but notable wins uh, whatever they t- decide to tackle. So whether that's withholding payment um, until they get repairs, whether that's shaming their council on social media, whether that's taking action and organising their community and holding their council to account, as have been happening in Druid's Heath, whatever um, it is that people have put their minds to, if they've organised well enough and they've been determined, they've sought it out, they've won. And they've won things that people in other parts of the movement may have not thought are possible. You've seen a net increase in social housing in Druid Teeth instead of a loss of hundreds of social homes. You've had repairs done that were previously ignored for 10 years as a result of the shaming and and the social media like trouncing of councils being done by um, Quajo and others. And this, this will end. I think the thing that we all need to remember is that ultimately this is a systemic problem. This is a set of political choices. And the Homes for Us campaign, which I'm leading on at NEF, is seeking to bring those local groups together, not just to help them win in their own communities and on their own battles, but to basically you know, turn the five fingers into a fist and put that pressure on government, who ultimately are the ones with the deep pockets and the political ability to end the housing crisis. They are choosing to ignore it at the moment. All we've got to choose to do is how long we're going to let them get away with that. Oh my God, so rousing, Becky. I'm I'm on board. (laughs) My five fingers are a fist. I'm there. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much and for all the incredible work that you're doing. Finally, I want to end, I mean, with each of you, although maybe Becky, that was was yours, um, telling listeners what role you think social housing kind of should play in our society, in our economy. And if we genuinely took social housing seriously what would our lives look like Suze? I, I think we should have public housing I think housing is too important to just leave up to market forces and we've seen the collapse of anything that relies on market forces that is an, uh, an essential we've seen that with gas and electricity it's not a good way to supply the things that people need and it's the same with housing and people are fighting their own little battles their own little corners, and it, it, it's just horrible for them. But as people start to raise their heads, then I think people will say, you know, this is something we've really got to fight for. We should have a stock of homes that people can move into that are suitable for their needs, whether that's, you know, they need to be near schools because they've got young children, they need to be near other facilities 
that that would be available for them. And it wouldn't be such a big issue if they needed to move, if they needed to downsize. We want housing that is planned um, and planned for people's needs, not to make these huge profits for a very, very small number of individuals. And I think that's where we will get to. I, I'm, I completely agree with Becky on that, that we will get there in the end. As do I. Uh, Becky, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, you. I mean, you asked how the country would look, how people's lives would look if we valued social homes. And I think really it would look maybe perhaps like it did in that sort of um, few decades where people were falling over themselves to get into council housing, not out of desperation, just out of desperation or about affordability, but because they were good homes and people wanted them and they enjoyed living in them I grew up in a council house that was built just after the second world war and it's it's a beautiful house I've not I've not lived in one that was as well built since and so what everyone's life would be like if we had that is that they would just be happy they wouldn't have to worry about the ceiling falling in or black mold or the rent all of a sudden being shoved up or not being able to meet a mortgage payment or um having to move at the drop of a hat, they would be able to put down roots and uh, enjoy their lives and they will not think about housing and there wouldn't be whole hour-long podcasts dedicated to it because it's a pretty weird thing to spend an hour talking about when you think about it. Like People would just be able to get on with their lives and that's what the housing crisis is stopping us all doing. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it, someone said to me the other day um, about the cost of living crisis. Since when did we accept that just merely being alive should be so expensive? And it feels so true with this, right, as well. It's like, as you say, we're spending hour-long podcasts and God knows how much more time and energy just trying to figure out how we can build a system where people can be housed. It is absolutely absurd. But thank you both so much for giving me hope. I do feel genuinely really excited, and I'm sure listeners do too, about where this is going. And it feels like it's going in the right direction. But that is all we've got time for um, on this episode of the New Economics Podcast. Becky Winson, thanks so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work or, or get on board with what you're up to, how can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter or they can go to homesforus.org.uk. Fantastic. And Suzanne Mooner, thank you so much also for being with us and bringing your wealth of wisdom. Uh, same question. Yeah, if people want to find out about Shack, they can just Google Social Housing Action Campaign and they'll find out website there's loads of information there they can register which will mean that they get informed about all the campaigns that we're, that we're running and how they can get involved so um yeah if you're if you're a housing association tenant or resident get involved fantastic that is it for today's new economics podcast but we'll be back soon with more if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at neff on twitter the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone and researched by margaret welsh i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe